Welcome to On Air with Clean Air Council. I'm your host, Katie Edwards. For those of you not familiar with us, Clean Air Council is a member-supported, nonprofit environmental organization dedicated to protecting everyone's right to a healthy environment. Clean Air Council advocate Russell Zerbo sat down with Nathaniel Phillip, who just graduated from Drexel with a master's in public health. Nathaniel also volunteers with Neighbors for Healthy Community Development. NHCD is a community group Clean Air Council has worked with in West Philly, specifically around a proposed residential development with serious environmental concerns. Nathaniel and Russell have been particularly focused on possible lead contamination at the site and go into specifics of the situation. Enjoy listening and learning. I'm Russell Zerbo. I use he, him pronouns. I'm an advocate at the Clean Air Council. Today we are talking with my friend Nathaniel. Nathaniel, welcome. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Nathaniel. I use they, them pronouns. I live in West Philly and a member of the Neighbors for Healthy Community Development community organization and currently a public health graduate student at Drexel University, soon to be graduating. That's fantastic. I bet those two pursuits have done well for you. Yeah, it's been great because I'm really glad to offer some of the skills and knowledge that I've built in academia to the people in my neighborhood who are really trying to do better for the community and to be one of those people who cares about my neighbors and and can do what I can to help. What is there to care about in your community? I live on this corner on the 4900 block of Pine. And as a resident, I've really tried to get to know people and get involved in, in what people are worried about. And a lot of that is housing security, housing justice issues. And that's a big part of what the Neighbors for Healthy Community Development, uh, NHCD, does and works for. And for me personally, I feel connected to the neighborhood. My grandparents, they immigrated from South India, and this corner, actually, 49th and Pine, was the first home that they had in the U.S. Oh, amazing. Yeah, for me, it's it's really cool to deepen the roots that I have actually in this neighborhood and to come back as someone who didn't grow up here uh, to try to become a part of the fabric of the community. And yeah, like I said, the housing justice issues are a big push that we're making as as a community around this development site at 303 South 51st Street, which has been bought by a developer and they've been trying to push through a 30 plus unit apartment building in a lot that is much too small and has potential really serious uh, environmental contaminant issues that we are worried about as residents. And in Philadelphia, it's most often the case, it seems, that developers kind of get their way. They get to do what they want. But NHCD has really come together, and I have been really lucky to be a part of this group and to offer what I can in terms of being a little more on the science-y side of things and offering a perspective on environmental safety to push back against this development that we think is unsafe and unjust and is furthering gentrification of West Philly. That's a very common story that I hear with community organizers in Philadelphia, people that sort of came and went or have some 
familial anchor and go and do something else and then come back and have these different routes in the city and they, you know, they see what's happening in other areas and go, oh, geez, like, why is why is Philly a little bit behind right now? And I could I mean, I could answer that question by saying it's a really big, really poor city, the largest deep poverty in the country of any big city, which obviously has a million different effects. You mentioned something really interesting about how developers are kind of allowed to do whatever they want in the city. That is supported and aided by various state and federal standards that aren't really that protective. One of the things that I have trouble understanding is how we can all agree that no amount of lead is safe, but then we look at state and federal regulations and they don't reflect that. So it's just like, how does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a great point. Just to take the example that you brought up in terms of lead exposure, there is no safe amount of lead exposure, especially for children who are affected much more than adults in terms of the neurological and developmental effects of lead exposure. But at least from my understanding, the regulations, they're much more centered on the companies or the owners of the land rather than the humans who are potentially coming in contact with those contaminants in the sense that if you say, you know, it's a non-zero amount of lead that we will allow on this site, you're saying that we're potentially exposing the humans around and on that site to this lead, but we just don't want the company or the owner to every single year be in some kind of red list where they're not in compliance with whatever regulations. So instead of saying you're in trouble every year for 10 years, they're saying, okay, neighbors, you might get some lead in your soil. And then your kid crawls around in it, puts their hand in their mouth, and lead ends up in your child's body and has health effects. Animals are really good at spreading that around. Your cat or dog that you may let in and outside moves that around. Your shoes. I've seen many presentations that talk about how scary lead pollution is. And then the big public health measure to fix it is to wipe your shoes before you go in your house, which does work, but is a little silly. I'm not sure I could get up in front of a community group and give my big wipe your shoes presentation. You brought up land use. So land cleanups are governed by Act 2 of 1995, which is a state law, that law only comes into play when the use of a piece of land changes, which it should come into play here. The big loophole that's happening, because it's an old auto garage in the middle of a residential area, is actually zoned residential. I mean, that's the big community concern, is what happened at that garage in the past 200 years, however long. Right. And the short answer is we don't know what happened at this garage for however long, because it wasn't until the 1970s and 1980s that there were actual regulations for the kinds of chemicals that are in and around. So the site itself at one point was a gas station. So there's you know gasoline, there's diesel, there's substances that are, are byproducts of all of the things that go on at a gas station. It was an auto body shop. It was an auto repair shop. There are solvents. 
There's potentially asbestos in the soil, asbestos particles, which is an occupational hazard for auto mechanics because it's in brake pads and different car parts. Lead, you know, there's all sorts of things that could be in the soil on this site that we just don't know about. What the community is concerned about is the fact that state and federal environmental safety regulations don't require a level of testing that will adequately protect people's health if the development is to begin. Meaning that if they get approved to start construction, they're going to dig up a foundation for the building and that soil is going to become dust in the air and very likely settle into people's backyards. And for this particular site, it's really difficult to see how that would be avoided because people's backyards are 20 feet away from the edge of this construction site. So it, it's just so hard to imagine them being able to keep all the particles of dust from people's houses. And it actually is probably impossible for them to do that. Meaning that whatever is in the soil is going to get into people's backyards, into their homes. And just to speak to the point you brought up earlier about wiping your shoes, you know, that's the kind of solution that really individualizes protecting your own health as a community member rather than addressing the source or really addressing, you know, the structures that are creating a health hazard. It's saying, well, you should protect yourself and we are not going to do enough to protect you at a higher level that you just have no access to. It would be on the community group to make those dust complaints. The city's not going to stand there and watch that construction project happening while you are dealing with this leaded, contaminated dust coming into your apartment, dealing with the stress of that, trying to take care of your family. You're also responsible for making that complaint and then following through with the city. And it's something that I'm happy to support community groups do. I do that across the city, but it's a lot of work on top of all of the other zoning considerations, all of the other work that NHCD and you have done. And the other thing that really concerns me about that issue is they don't have the exact proposal yet. They're talking about it as though they have a written in stone blueprint for what this development is going to be. And that's going to affect, like you're saying, the proximity to homes, where they're going to dig, where various things are going to be. And all of that is just up in the air right now, to be a little punny. Exactly. So there are actually two things you brought up that I want to touch on. One is the individualized nature of people having to care about their own health. So on the one hand, we want both, right? We want people to have the information to protect themselves individually. And we also want solutions that are going to address groups of people, whole communities. And the city has the power to do that, or the state or the federal government has the power to address whole groups of people. But really what NHCD is trying to do is to connect individuals in a way that we become the group that protects ourselves. So building those community connections is a bottom-up way of protecting groups of people that the city and these other agencies are, are not willing to do or, or haven't done yet. Will you bring up city agencies and one of my absolute biggest issues in Philadelphia right now is that the health department does not have a soil health group. 
it is under the jurisdiction of the state of Pennsylvania. And it's a classic kind of city-state issue. Yeah, there are these bureaucratic entanglements at different levels that end up leaving so many gaps for things like these issues that we're talking about in terms of this specific site and the environmental safety concerns. They just slip through the cracks. But with that said, y'all's biggest success, you could say, is one of those little bureaucratic issues. That's a good point and gets to the second thing that I wanted to touch on that you had mentioned is the plan uh, that the developers had made for the site. So they had an initial development plan and they shared the architectural plan with the community. Looking at it, we have a number of people in our community who have skills and professional experience to bring to the table in defense of community concerns. So we're really lucky in that sense. And one of those people went into the city fire code and actually looked up the different parameters that a site would need to adhere to the fire safety code and found that the plan, the architectural plan, was too close to the edge of the site to allow fire apparatus to get to the back corner of the building. So this is a big fire safety hazard for the people who would potentially live in this apartment building. Uh, It's also a fire safety hazard for the houses that surround this building, because again, some of them are only 20 feet away and they're 100 year old, you know, wooden old structures. And they could easily catch fire from the apartment building if that apartment building is on fire. And it also puts the lives of firefighters and first responders in danger because a fire truck could enter the site and block people who are trying to get out of the building and and all the mass confusion. It, It just is a terrible situation waiting to happen. So what the community did was cite this particular piece of the code and reach out to the fire commissioner and officials at the city level who do fire safety reviews of proposed development. And we pulled the community together, not just the NHCD regular members who were at the meetings every week, but the whole community for a phone and email campaign to contact the fire commissioner and these officials to review the site. We had some people in our community who called every day or emailed every day for weeks or did both. And, you know, just hearing from people's experiences, they got some messages back from the fire commissioner that really let us know that we were annoying them, which is is what you need to do as a community to get things done through the bureaucratic mess. So we were annoying, we were loud, and we were persistent. And the persistence paid off because they did the review of the site plans and found that they were not in accordance with the code and denied the permit to the developers. That's where we currently are. The developers don't have a permit to build. Once that happened, they became much nicer to the community. They agreed to attend community meetings and agreed to regular communication with NHCD. So we got a win in this situation that they didn't expect because most developers don't run into these kind of roadblocks in Philadelphia. What we did set a precedent and now we have communication that most groups don't get with developers.
it was interesting in particular for me to notice there are state laws around environmental justice that dictate, you know, what is an environmental justice area in terms of racial population makeup and poverty and different metrics that our neighborhood meets. So if development is planned in an environmental justice area, there is a policy that dictates the kinds of communication that a developer needs, but it's really only for building clear environmental polluting sites. So if you're going to build a trash incinerator or you're going to build a power plant, but if you're going to build an apartment building, it doesn't really apply. So in our case, it wouldn't have applied, but because we fought, we actually got all of the communication standards that the policy lays out. So we got the benefits of the law without having to actually meet the letter of the law just through the persistence of community members. There are two really exciting changes happening with environmental justice policy that I'm excited about. The state of Pennsylvania is considering getting rid of the census track requirement there. It's a federal guidance document that is adopted by states, either an area where 20% of the people live under the poverty line or 30% of the population is minority. That's the entire city of Philadelphia, which theoretically should mean we have less pollution sources, which is not really happening. But the state of New Jersey actually has the now nation-leading environmental justice policy where they're actually supposed to prevent the construction of facilities that overburden low-income communities of color. It hasn't happened yet. There might be a lawsuit from either side eventually if it does happen. But you brought up a really, really interesting point that the construction or demolition is not considered an industrial process. So it doesn't fall into that permitting situation. And it goes back to what we were talking about before. It's not a full-scale permit that is overseen by the state. You're just allowed to call and complain about it in the eyes of the city of Philadelphia. So a really big inequality there. But you are in this, this really interesting situation where lines of communication with the developer and NHCD are open. NHCD is really sensitive. I mean, they haven't shut the developer out. The developer can come to any meeting and make a presentation. And you're just kind of waiting for something to happen. What do you think will happen now? What are you asking for? What are you waiting for? Yeah. So one ingredient to all of this that I think has been really, really helpful is the way that we have created relationships with local politicians. So we have the backing of our local city council member, and we have contact with our state senator and our state representatives, and they are on our side, which is a really huge boon in these kinds of situations where communities don't always have the support of local politicians. And the outcomes tend to skew more towards the developers' plans. So what we are doing right now is trying to strengthen all of the relationships that we have with different people in the city, in politics, in the fire department, in different types of regulatory agencies, with other community groups around the city. Because as of right now, the developers do not have a pathway to build their building. And they are coming to us with fixes and with new plans 
to try to make good with the community so that we don't resist the next attempt they make to get that permit. The permit appeal has been delayed. And at this point, they have indefinitely delayed the day when they would break ground because they don't have that permit. They have no proposal. There's You can't build something without a proposal. That is sort of the process we're in right now. They are coming back to us with, hey, we are going to change this west side of the building. Or here's our new plan. And we haven't seen those plans yet, but... Probably in the next few weeks, we're going to see what they come back to the community with. Because right now, the developers are kind of back on their heels. They are the ones who have to try to right themselves. And we are in control of the conversation, which, again, is a place where most community groups don't get to be. And it actually has set a precedent in a lot of ways in West Philly and throughout the city. Recently, There was a community meeting at 5000 Warrington, proposed development there. And we've been in contact with different housing justice groups and environmental safety type groups around the city. And those kind of meetings are happening differently now. You know, our council member is is advocating for these things differently. And it's likely that if those uh, developments start to happen in West Philly, they'll come to us to ask us what we think because we are now a powerful voice in the local community and local politics. And and that's really changed the way that people are engaging with developers in West Philly, uh, not just at our site, but beyond the boundaries of who's walking next to 303 South 51st Street. I absolutely agree with you. This is a new issue. This is not something that used to be a problem. It was Back in the day, industrial sites were industrial sites and residences were residences. And it's just not that way anymore. These problems are not going away. There's only so much space in the city of Philadelphia. I I think that's a great point. So specifically with the 303 South 51st Street, there was a whole zoning mix-up ordeal that led to where we are now. Like you mentioned, these auto garage sites have been around for a long time, and then residential neighborhoods kind of expanded and grew up around them in a lot of ways. So the site itself was miszoned for a long time. It was zoned for mixed land use, which allows developers to build the kind of apartment building that is proposed. But really, based on the surroundings, it should have been zoned just for single family homes for residential development. And with the previous council member, there had been talks with the community about changing the zoning, but it didn't happen in time because the current developers had already bought the site and they're kind of given a pass because now the zoning has been changed and it is technically zoned just for residential use. But because they bought it just before the change happened, and that was due to a long delay by the previous council person who just didn't act quickly, likely because they didn't take us seriously as community members in the political conversation. So that led to this point where now the developers are kind of stuck with a plot of land that they paid a lot of money for, but it's zoned in a way that they shouldn't be able to make that money back, except that they've been given this reprieve, you know, to be able to build what they originally intended to build. And 
that's it's it's a problem for for everyone but it doesn't mean that the community has to take on the risks and to take on the expansion of the gentrifying forces in west philly it's very telling the the thing that you're talking about people usually refer to as grandfathering in which is a piece of vocabulary from american slavery the place I understand that it comes from is post-Civil War, post the freedom from slavery. For a lot of people, there was huge amounts of voter suppression because white people didn't want black people to vote in their country. I mean, this is a topic that we've been seeing so much about with all the elections and everything happening in recent times. But, you know, there were different ways that voter suppression happened. There were poll taxes where poor black folks couldn't pay to vote, literacy tests, and grandfathering in was a rule where if your grandfather voted, then you were allowed to vote. But especially in the Reconstruction era, none of the grandfathers of the people who were just freed from slavery had been allowed to vote. So it was yet another way of blocking black people from getting to the polls to have real political power. You were exempted from your poll tax or literacy test if your grandfather had voted. Something along those lines. I don't know how all of the voter suppression actually like intertwined, but I know that they were all in force at this point and really in a lot of ways still are. If you are learning from our podcast and like what you hear, please consider becoming a member of Clean Air Council. Clean Air Council is a member-supported, nonprofit environmental organization dedicated to protecting everyone's right to a healthy environment. Membership information can be found online at cleanair.org backslash donate. Our neighborhood is largely black, largely people of color, largely working class. And again, developers tend to get what they want because people often don't have the time or the energy to organize against new projects. So we're able to do that and do it for the broader community, even if people can't show up to meetings every week. You know, we try to keep people engaged by having a really strong Instagram presence, actually. It's been a great way to spread the word, especially activist-type people in West Philly. Previously, the way that I got involved with NHCD was a meeting in a church basement. So I showed up to the meeting, the council member was there, someone from licenses and inspections was there, different community members spoke, and I got to learn for the first time about this development, this whole saga, which had been going on for at least eight months by that point. NHCD organized in spring of 2019. So it was in the fall when I went to this church meeting. And prior to our social media presence, most of the people who were engaged were older and were more likely to show up to meetings in the church basement. And this is especially pre-COVID-19 pandemic. So now everyone's at home and we still do have uh, meetings and, and events on Zoom, but the Instagram presence has really boosted our ability to reach different people. I think currently we have over 2,000 followers, which is a great way for us to not only let people know what's going on in our, our neighborhood, but to amplify 
other things that are happening in the area or in the city and to make connections with groups that are doing similar kind of work. It's so hard that before quarantine, I was at community events every weekend. I really feel for community groups trying to do it. But there is this potential now. We've been kind of reorienting how community groups think about each other. So Nathaniel, you're talking about building all this momentum, the Instagram, getting everybody on virtual community meetings and keeping all of this up through quarantine. What's the long-term plan for you, for NHCD? Yeah, just again, I think the persistence of our group is really what has made us so successful and successful in the sense of being able to make change happen for our goals and for our community and successful also in keeping connections between people and building relationships. So in terms of NHCD, the future is I mean, we're still in the fight, really, for this development, and that's our main focus right now. But long term, we want to connect with activists around the city and make connections and build these networks for housing justice and environmental safety in development across Philly, which you've been mentioning is a problem all over the map here in Philadelphia. For me personally, So I mentioned at the top that I am about to graduate from my program at Drexel, my MPH program, Masters of Public Health. Congratulations. And thank you very much. I'm one month out and the push is real and it's going to be soon that I am currently looking and hoping to be employed in the field of urban planning, actually, is is where I'm looking right now. Planning and public health They have a really long history of being intertwined in terms of planning water and sewage and how people get from place to place having such a huge impact on their daily health. And that has only exploded, especially in recent times. Um, But I I would say in the past 20 years or so, maybe people in the planning field are getting back to that point of understanding what they do, not only in terms of economic development, and the money that you know will come to a local economy but also in terms of environmental justice racial economic justice is there a park for kids to play in is there uh, public transportation access are there jobs in the neighborhood so these are the kind of questions that i'm interested in and working with nhcd has been really gratifying not only for me being able to be connected with my neighbors, but also to learn a bit more of the process of how do these things happen? Who makes decisions? Who do we think would make a decision, but actually it's somebody else? How do we get around those corners that come up in trying to advocate for people who don't often have a voice in decision-making, especially at much higher levels, but including at the local government level? You could get three doctorates in planning and not have the experience that you've had in the past six or nine months. The combination of that academic experience and the experience with NHCD, I think any planning agency, you would be an asset to. A point that you mentioned about sewage that I want to bring up, a lot of people will point to the city's sewage overflow situation as a, you know, poor planning. And I mentioned earlier about, you know, sometimes we just have legacy problems that we did not intend. 
In the early 20th century, that combined sewer system was the latest technology. And it took care of their water because they didn't have that much. And 120 years later, we have more water and it's mixing with sewage and overflowing. So I think it's important to see these problems and try to fix them. But also acknowledge that they themselves were the solutions to problems 120 years ago. Totally. And yeah, just to quickly pick up on that point, when with the combined sewer system, the way I understand it is the sewage and the stormwater all end up in the same pipes. And then when the system is overflowed with water, the city just has to dump the excess because it's going to overwhelm the system, which means they're dumping raw sewage into the rivers, which is creating a huge problem environmentally and really, like you said, used to be the solution, but times are changing. The climate is changing. Our populations are changing. Uh, and you know, one of the approaches is a citywide stormwater management program, which is increasing green spaces as opposed to impervious, you know, like asphalt or sidewalks, which don't absorb any of the water. So that also brings into play access to green space, you know, as a public health issue in terms of physical activity, in terms of mental health, in terms of the heat island effect in cities, you know, so it is definitely, from my understanding, planning thinks definitely the first and the second steps of that. But there are also so many ripple effects on human health that one issue can have. And that's really the, the kind of approach that I'm interested in when it comes to planning is thinking about what are people doing in their everyday life to interact with the structures of the built environment? And how is that going to affect their rates of diabetes in their neighborhood? Because a combined sewer system may not be connected to diabetes in everyone's mind, but it could be, it should be. Let me see if I can sketch that out in my head right now. So there's a lot of sewage overflows in the Cobbs Creek right now in West Philly. That's where a lot of our sewage pipes go. People do recreate in the Cobbs Creek against the city's advice. But wouldn't it be great if you actually could recreate in the Cobbs Creek? And that would have positive effects on your health and mental health. the last thing we're going to talk about today, and I don't expect you to have an answer to this question. You mentioned gentrification a few times. City has this amazing green city, clean waters program, adding green space, reducing the heat island effect, reducing flooding. And a lot of people say that that encourages gentrification. How do we get out of that loop as all of the positive things that we're doing may have these negative economic effects? Not to put you on the spot. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a big question and I don't have an answer, but I can offer some experiences that I've had just seeing how these things happen. So going back to NHCD and the development that we are resisting, one of the fights that we have been pushing with the developers is affordable units in the building. 
how many of the units are going to be affordable versus how many are going to be at market price. Because, you know, adding more market price units will boost housing costs for everyone in the neighborhood. And that's, you know, pushing people out as a form of gentrification. I think in terms of access to green space, Malcolm X Park is just around the corner. And it's been there for decades, but there are these two currents of increasing housing costs brings in people who can pay more for housing. And the green space is often considered a perk where you can increase the price of a unit if there's green space nearby. Green space makes a neighborhood desirable for people to live there. And the problem comes in when it's not desirable in a way that is accessible or just for the people who are already there. You know, when new people come in to push those people out, that's how green space can be a part of gentrification. Talking about cause and effect is really tough. Another thing that I've seen, I worked at a, an elementary school in South Philly for a few years, and Bach, if you know it, it's a an old high school that the city shut down. As far as I remember, it's Frank Rizzo, the racist mayor, who shut down this high school where mostly black and brown kids went to school. That makes um, sense. Yeah. And so now it's become a shared workspace. So all these different companies and businesses have offices in Bach and it's becoming like this, you know, urban renewal type change in the neighborhood. And when I first started working at the elementary school, there weren't any street trees around the edge on the perimeter of the school. But as I you know, was there for a few more years, I noticed the city planting trees where there hadn't been before. And just noticing this is happening while Bach is developing and it's becoming a more desirable place for especially young, middle-class white people to move to. I mean, yeah, just to back to your question, it's really complicated because everyone deserves access to green space and to have a nice neighborhood to live in. In the structure of the way that we do housing under capitalism in Philadelphia in particular, just means that we don't protect people from being pushed out by prices that are increasing when maybe the prices don't need to increase or maybe those people who live there deserve more protections than they get from the market. Well, you know who is protected from the market? The owners of new housing get a nice 10-year property tax abatement. So yeah, lucky for them. Yeah, that's a whole issue. Goes back to education as well tax abatements, you know, reducing funding for public schooling or funding that could go to public schooling is something that a lot of teachers and a lot of people in the city are talking about. I'm just thinking about this right now. You're talking about all the great things about green space, specifically Malcolm X Park. Not only is it a cool place to hang out, but it allowed NHCD to have one of the coolest events. I mean, I haven't been to that many events in the past two years. Yeah, that's probably the only rally I've been to in the last year or two. Wildly successful TV coverage. Councilperson Gautier was there. Only possible because you have a park literally right where your issue is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is an example of how a park or a green space becomes a focal point, not just for physical activity or, or mental health, but for people to meet each other and make connections and to organize around the things that the community cares about. For those events, for those rallies, and you know, we've had 
other community meetings in the park and just, you know, meetings of neighbors, we have felt really fortunate to have that space and fortunate also for the relationships of other groups. For instance, Girls Rock Philly provided sound equipment, you know, Mina's World and, and Bunny Hop, they provided food for different events that we've run in the park. So it's a it's a gathering place. It's a focal point for the community that the park can be. And also NHCD has been that way. You know, one of the things that has been really great is NHCD has been a hub for mutual aid in the neighborhood. So, you know, one of our members had an extra heater in her house and somebody emailed NHCD because they were having trouble with their heating and were able to get a hold of this heater. People keep up with the big events that are happening in people's lives, deaths, weddings, things that are going on, we know now because of NHCD being able to be a site where people can come to talk to each other or to be connected. And again, you know, Malcolm X Park is a part of that. The people who live in our community are a part of that. And it is a way for the community to, like I said before, be a bottom-up kind of organizing force to advocate for the whole group. Clean Air Council as an entity promotes green space. We have a lot of projects that promote green space. When we write grant applications and we describe projects, we use words like civic connectivity and community cohesiveness to describe green space. And it sounds a little silly. And sometimes people will read it and go, what actually are you talking about here? And I wish I could just like have a picture of that rally. This is what I'm talking about. I feel like the two of us have been the main drivers of the environmental safety conversations that NHCD has been having. And recently I did an environmental safety training with the NHCD steering committee, the people who were there every week for the meetings. And you and I talked about history of Philadelphia and development and these kind of lots that were auto garages at one point. And it was really helpful for me. And the training went really, really well. People were really happy to have some knowledge about what the actual risks are that they're facing. So I was able to do research and I, I don't have field experience with environmental testing. I'm a student still, but I was able to do the research to understand what should we be worried about? What are the highest priorities? What are the medium priorities? And what are the contaminants that might be there or have already been tested for that we're not as worried about. The big ones, lead came up as high priority, asbestos came up as high priority, and PCBs, which are polychlorinated biphenyls, they're in the hydraulic lifts that an auto garage might use to lift cars. What I was really hoping to do was just give people the knowledge to understand the conversations that are happening about their health and to advocate for themselves. And this training went really well. We are sharing it with the community as a recording and planning to roll out a larger training to the broader community so that people who have their own questions can send them to us and we can address them more directly. Because again, I think that not only the people who are showing up every week to the meetings need to have this information, but all the people in the community have a right to understand what's happening in their neighborhood that could affect their health. 
So we're really excited about this upcoming opportunity and are, are hoping to you know, gather information and questions from people in the upcoming weeks. That's amazing. When you look at land remediation, they're just starting to think about a so-called lead washing technique that is nowhere out of the lab just yet. But I did go to a conference and heard this chemist speak about literally making organisms in his lab that he then disseminated into bodies of water to literally eat PCBs. That's really cool. Yeah, one of the things that I find interesting and sometimes frustrating about environmental safety research is that it just takes years. And those are years when people are being exposed to these things. I'll tell you a really scary story that I heard. There's a lot of PCBs and all sorts of things. They used to be in older electronics, televisions, things like that in the 70s. So they made them illegal in the late 70s. Everybody threw out their TVs so it contaminated all the landfills with PCBs. Scary. Because we just don't know. People don't know what's going into the things in their house or, you know, in their backyard. So people deserve to have that knowledge to understand, okay, I'm going to be filling my the landfill just down the road with a chemical that may harm me. So yeah, giving people that knowledge is really important to me. And there's such a divide between the cutting edge land remediation chemist and what a real estate developer wants to pay someone to do. A lot of space there. Absolutely. Not only what they want to pay someone to do, but what the government requires them to pay someone to do. And those requirements are often not stringent enough for community members to actually be able to guarantee their safety and health. That's one of the really funny things that I've observed from the NHCD negotiations, from negotiations with other groups, is this absurd conversation will happen the community group asked the developer for something like more ground testing. The developer comes back and says, we did what state law requires. The community group comes back and says, I'm just talking to you right now. I just ask you to do something. What sort of a response is, well, the state law doesn't require it. That's not how people talk to each other. Right. And even just thinking about the cost of testing, early versus the effects on human health that could come up later for people's well-being. And in, in our case, the cost of the developers hiring a lawyer to fight a court appeal would potentially end up being the same amount that they would pay to do the testing that we're asking of them and maintain a good relationship with the community now. But they may not think long-term in that way. and don't seem like they want to be told what to do by people they don't respect, really. So we're making them respect us as a group. You've certainly done that. I really appreciate all your time, Nathaniel. Yeah, thank you for having me, Russell. It's been great. Thanks, Russell and Nathaniel. To learn more about NHCD, please visit westphillynhcd.com. To learn more about Clean Air Council, please visit cleanair.org. Thank you.